You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode number 109 of the Business for Good podcast. As predicted, the last episode with my wife, Tony Okamoto, was a real crowd pleaser. Apparently, people really want to know how social media influencers make a living, and they appreciated Tony's transparency about her various revenue streams and the kind of money that influencers can make. Now, speaking of influencers and my wife, if you've not yet ordered her latest cookbook but you want to, you can get it anywhere books are sold, or you can just go to plantbasedonabudgetcookbook.com. Since the book was released on March 7th, 2023, in its first week, it shot up to number 23 on all of Amazon. That's not 23 out of all the cookbooks, 23 on all of the 30 million books that are currently sold on amazon.com. Will Tony make her goal of being a New York Times bestseller? We will soon find out. If so, it would really illustrate the power of social media as she received nearly no national coverage in the media for her book release and really has just been driving sales of the plant-based on a budget cookbook quick and easy via social media posts from her community. Okay, now speaking of episodes that are popular, we get a lot of good downloads on these newly released episodes. It's gratifying to know that there's a lot of people out there who get enough from the show that there's a really good base of listeners. I will note, however, that it is remarkable to me that while new episodes get substantial downloads, episodes from nearly a year or two ago, or maybe even more, get very few downloads these days. That's a real shame, since nearly all of them are quite evergreen, and if we re-release them today, they'd no doubt get good listenership just like they did when they were first released. For whatever reason, people don't seem to go back to older episodes to listen to them that often. If you have ideas on this, especially whether we should re-release some back episodes as new ones, perhaps with brief updates on the companies, just let me know. We do have a best of section on the website homepage to show off some of the all-time most downloaded episodes, but I'd be grateful for your opinion about whether we should just make an effort to increase consumption of older episodes in any way. You can email me by going to businessforgoodpodcast.com and let me know your thoughts. Okay, now moving on to this episode. Back in 2021, there was a lengthy analysis published by a now defunct website called The Counter, and it concluded that Cultivating animal cells or making cultivated meat or clean meat at a commercial meat industry scale was simply a pipe dream. Josh March was enthusiastic about the clean meat space, but he didn't really disagree with this analysis. But he thought that if you could bioengineer the animal cells to get a lot more comfortable at production scale and add those finished cells than into otherwise plant-based meats, you could both commercialize meat cultivation and make animal-free burgers taste even better. Not only did Josh persuade himself of it, but he persuaded investors too. In 2022, a very difficult time for startups to raise venture capital money, Josh's startup, Sci-Fi Foods, raised $22 million to bioengineer better animal-free beef. Of course, many in the cultivated meat world shy away from talking about or practicing bioengineering, sometimes called genetic modification, for fear that it will turn consumers off. But not Josh Marsh. He is betting big that technologies like bioengineering and CRISPR are actually the only path to commercial success in this field, and so he is going all in. In this interview, we talk about Josh's story, including two previous startups resulting in acquisitions, his motivations for doing this work, and what he sees as the future of meat. I'm confident that you're going to find this conversation with Josh March as interesting as I did.
Josh, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. It is great to have you. We've known each other for many years, and I have only known you in the context of the cultivated meat area. Although I guess when we first met, which I think was 2016, if my memory serves me correctly, at the New Harvest Conference in San Francisco, I guess we would have been calling it cultured meat back then. So I've only known you as a cultured or a cultivated meat guy, but you actually have quite a lengthy entrepreneurial history prior to being interested in meat. So I know that you have founded several companies before this one, some of which were acquired. So congratulations on that. But they weren't in the environmental or animal welfare or climate space. They had to do nothing with food or anything. So why don't you just first tell us what were the companies that you spent most of your career running and how'd you get interested in meat in the first place? Yeah. So you know, it's 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 an interesting story. When I when I was at university, I ended up setting up. I got interested in kind of entrepreneurship, and my very first real startup was an e-commerce company that was actually doing eco and fair trade goods, partly from Africa because my mom was living in Kenya at the time. That I was kind of packaging up, packaging up nicely, and and, and selling in the UK. I, I was only twenty, and I was a law student with no business experience when I tried setting up this company. And really had no idea what I was doing. And the company essentially failed. I kind of figured a lot out and got it up and running and did make some money. It, it was making some money, but realized that I didn't have enough resources to do the company in the way it needed to be successful. And, and I had to shut it down. And for how long did you run it before realizing it was going to shut down? It was probably like a year, year and a half or so. Yeah. Did you consider no, it devastating? Operational. Like, did you did you consider it devastating yeah. to see the company that you'd founded shut down? Yeah, it was a big ego hit. You know, I was a pretty arrogant, kind of overconfident twenty year old, thinking I was going to take over the world instantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I learned a lot of painful lessons from that failure. Yeah, a big part of it being that I should listen to other people. Uh, <laughs> you know, as I as I was kind of thinking about all the things that had gone wrong, uh, yeah. I realized that. <laughs> There were people who told me that every every single mistake I made, someone had pointed out and I hadn't listened. The problem is, though, that when you talk to people who actually succeeded, they'll say the same thing, that all these people told me it would never work, and then they finally made it work, right? So they proved all the doubters wrong. And so you you have no way of really ascertaining whether you're in the camp that you were in, which is where they were actually right, or whether these other people just lacked the vision that that this particular founder had. Yeah, but you know... When I say listen to other people, I don't necessarily mean do what they say, right? You've got to strike your own course and make your own decisions. But if, if there are people with experience in the industry pointing out mistakes and challenges, mm-hmm. you should pay attention well, to that. Not necessarily well, as a reason to not do the business, but as a way to like yeah. figure out, okay, well, is this a real problem and do I, do I need to figure out how to solve it? Well, we're going to get all into that actually later in this interview. Yeah. But I want to hear your personal story first, because as you know, there are many people who are quite expert who are saying, hey, cultivated meat is never going to work at scale. And I know obviously you disagree with that. So we're going to get into that as to why you think these experts are wrong. But first, let's just hear. So you, your first company flopped, then what? Yeah. And you know that experience got me thinking a lot about you know, why I failed and what I needed to do better. And one of the things that I really felt that I'd failed on was online marketing and how to reach out and connect with customers. And it was just at the time that social media was really kind of taking off and Facebook was exploding. And around that time, Facebook launched their first application platform 
allowed third parties to build apps on Facebook that could engage with customers. And I just thought that was a really unique and powerful way of connecting with people in a way that just hadn't existed before. And so I ended up learning how to code, meeting up with developers, starting building apps on the Facebook platform, and ended up founding an agency that became one of the first agencies in the world and to, to be building Facebook apps for big brands. And we became a close partner of Facebook. And it became a, a successful, profitable agency in the UK. Um, I realized that I didn't want to be doing an agency. I wanted to be doing a company that could have bigger impacts. And we had an idea to spin out a software company that would help companies do customer service over social media and ended up spinning that company out. It's called Conversocial. We ended up selling the first agency and raised venture capital for the software company Conversocial. And I kind of ran that for, ended up running it for kind of eight, nine years or so before stepping down and having it acquired and then launching sci-fi now (laughs) there's lots of different types of acquisitions obviously like were these financially lucrative for you as a founder or were they just benefiting the investors with the preferred shares like did did these have a consequential impact on your material well-being you know it it was a decent but not an earth-shattering exit got it so but did you you, did did you feel like you were well compensated for those eight or nine years you know mostly in how much i learned (laughs) (laughs) Um, but but certainly enough that you know i can afford a down payment on a house in san francisco and you know child care i mean a a house and a down payment on a house in san francisco i know is no small feat so that is uh i feel very grateful for 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 that time period yeah but yeah, nice. I will only note my parochial interest in this topic by asserting that Forbes did just name that the best city in the entire state of California to live in is Sacramento. So, <laughs> so should you decide, I am. So should you decide, you know, you want to go northeast a little bit, your welfare will improve. But anyway, yeah. all right. So you know, after Cover Social gets acquired, you have a little bit more cash in your pocket, and then you decide. I want to do meat. Why? Like you're, you're focused on these types of companies that are helping essentially communicate with customers, which is very different than wanting to rebuild the meat industry. So what happened? Yeah. Like why, why well, were we even at the new harvest conference in 2016 yeah. where we met? Yeah. And that was years before actually common social was acquired or I stepped down. Cause I was, it had been an obsession of mine for a long time. Well, the, the side story is that I'd basically been obsessed with the idea of cultivated meat for almost 15 years. I actually around the same time that kind of we were spitting out conversocial and all that stuff was happening. I'd, I'd read a couple of, a couple of key books. The first book I'd read was the singularity is near by Ray Kurzweil. And that book got me incredibly excited by the huge potential that technology could have to like make a huge positive impact on the world and changed the world for the better and got me, made me realize that that could happen in our lifetimes. You know, that the, the exponential of technology meant that we could really have dramatic positive impacts on the world. And around the same time, I read this science fiction book, uh, player of games by Ian M. Banks and in, in Ian M. Banks culture, futuristic kind of culture society, he talks about the fact that they cultivate their meat. And they grow it in tanks instead of having to kill animals. That's cool. And and as soon as I read that, it just kind of like 
it was like a light bulb going off in my brain. And I was like, as I was thinking about oh, all this amazing change that could happen in the world through technology and like, how's the, how's human civilization going to look like in the next 20, 30, 40 years? I was like, it can't just be that we're like cutting down the rest of the rainforest and throwing like billions of animals into factory farming. Like that can't be the fu- like, that's not like the utopian future that I was like dreaming of. And it just seemed clear to me that a major part of that future had to be that we could figure out how to create real meat without the need for all the environmental devastation and animal welfare issues of, of, you know, conventional and animal agriculture. That's right. It's really interesting that both the combination of a nonfiction and a fiction book had this yeah. impact on you because I read Singularity is near and I don't recall Kurzweil talking about meat in the book. So I was no, thinking, like, how, how did he get to that place? And, you know, I, I think about this a lot, the fact that it is typically novels that have the biggest impact on people like you know mm-hmm. people think oh well serious minded people read nonfiction but you know if you think about the books that have had like the biggest impact on readers in the world it's usually novels like uncle tom's cabin the jungle 1984 animal farm yeah. 451 like these kind of culture changing books are are often novels e- even if you look at the bible it's basically just a collection of stories yeah. and it's very rare it's very rare that you find a non-fiction book uh, aside from clean meat of course that has a major impact right now i'm just kidding about clean meat but you know you do see like there are some non-fiction books animal liberation by peter singer is one that has you know been truly transformative but e- you know even on the right books like atlas shrugged and fountainhead are, are really like considered canonical by a lot of people yeah. and had a transformative effect on them and so anyway i find it interesting that it was a novel that helped to spark your interest here rather than reading you know some nonfiction book on the topic yeah and yeah i i think that especially science fiction right if you're working as a entrepreneur in technology you know, how, how do you think about how, what, what kind of future do we want to build? And, you know, science fiction authors are there spending all day, every day thinking about how the future could look. Right. And so I think it's an amazing source of inspiration. Well, if you're interested in futuristic books that do touch on this topic, I'll make a recommendation to you called Tender is the Flesh, uh, Mm. which is a a short novel by an Argentinian woman named, I think her name is Agustina Bastareca. But I read it and absolutely loved it. But I I don't want to give anything away. But it's it's not so much about cultivated meat as it is about so-called defective humans taking the place of animals, like for all Mm -hmm. the uses that we use animals for today. But it's, you know, it's quite a compelling story i i found so cool. if you're into if you're into futuristic yeah, novels okay cool sure. so you all right so, so you're reading player of games you're reading ray kurzweil and you're like okay maybe we can actually make this a reality at that point i mean i i presume this was after 2013 so the mark post burger had already been debuted so you may have been familiar with that or is that not no, true? it was actually it was actually before quite a bit mm. before 2013 okay. we're, we're probably talking like 2009 2010 wow. so, that I I read those books right. and started thinking about this. Right. So new harvest um, exist new harvest existed, but there was no nobody really doing this in the commercial yeah. sense and, and yeah. even really in the academic sense for the most part. Yeah, and so I actually yeah. felt like I didn't realize that anyone was kind of thinking about it. And in my mind, I was like, all right, I'm going to have to figure out how to invent this technology. And so you know, my kind of secret plan back then was all right. I'm working on these like social media software companies will have to make a load of money this way. And then you pile that money into figuring out how to make cultivated meat a reality. <laughs> now, so that was, that was kind of my plan for years. 
now you know company ended up ended up taking a lot longer than i thought you know it was a kind of overall between those two companies it was like a 12 year 12 year journey and within that time i started to hear about other scientists and entrepreneurs working on cultivated meat obviously the mark post burger in 2013 but then especially 2016 which is when new harvest did that first conference in in san francisco that was really where i kind of met a lot of the the, the early players and at that point i did i wasn't sure if i would need to go and do a company in the space honestly and i was like great like maybe this is happening without me like my main goal was wanting to see it in the world and so i started doing a bit of investing and a bit of advising and became a donor to new harvest and was like maybe i'll just be a supporter and i spent a number of years just spending time with the people and learning as much as i could about the science and the biology and the technology and over that time i really started to i kind of came to this conclusion that there were some pretty major challenges that i felt were going to prevent cultivated meat from really reaching the impact that i knew it needed to have and i kind of especially around the cost of cultivated meat and I felt kind of a bit disenchanted what I was seeing in the industry. And honestly, started to feel like I needed to go launch a company in the space myself in order to make it happen. That's maybe a little bit egotistic and messianic, but, but that's kind of the truth of how I felt. <laughs> and it was really that that drove me to say, okay, I need to get on this and, and do a company, ASAP. And so the company was originally called Artemis Foods, right? Before you mm -hmm. changed the name. What, what is the, why the Greek? goddess of wildlife like what is what is it about artemis that led you to to call your company this yeah you know i mean at the time i knew that hey this is going to be a consumer company and we're going to have to do some real work on branding and brand strategy right and so when we first started we were in stealth and we just kind of needed a placeholder name and uh, i'm a fan of a lot of the greek myths and stories um I'm actually listening to a book on them at the moment called Mythos, which is awesome. I'm really enjoying it. It's kind of a retelling of the Greek, the Greek stories. Oh, and, cool. is, um, it, 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 is it like a retelling that kind of is like a modern version looking at some of the villains who actually maybe aren't villainous or is that a different book that I'm thinking of? I think that's a different book. It, it's a, it's okay. a great book okay. by Stephen Fry, who's like a UK treasure yes. intellectual. Yeah. And it's basically, it's, it's, it's retelling the original stories. It's not updating them but it's just he, it. he uses his own words and references modern stuff. In there, um, yeah, there, there, yeah, there, there is a different book. I'll include it in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com because I, I too am a, a fan of Greek mythology and I haven't read this book, nor can I remember the name now, but again, I'll include it in the show notes, which is basically like a more woman-centric telling of the right. Greek myths. And oftentimes many of the female gods are not portrayed in the best light back then. So it's right. a different re retelling. But anyway, all right, Mythos. So we'll include a link to that yeah. book also in the notes. Yeah. And Artemis is obviously the goddess of the, of the hunt and wild animals. And mm -hmm. so it felt it felt cool. fitting uh, nice. as a placeholder. Yeah, cool. <clears throat> all right. So, uh, you know, we don't need to like belabor the name change issue. Obviously, companies uh, change their names all the time. In fact, I'll, I'll mention there's a, an updated paperback edition of Queen Meat that is coming out. And this is really the first opportunity to update the book in the last five years. And one of the updates is like all these companies have changed their names. You know, it's like Memphis Meats and Clara right. Foods. All these companies out now they're Upside Foods and Every. And so there's a, yeah. a lot of just up, and and in the book it's Hampton Creek, not Eat Just. So that's like one of the the key right. things that is getting changed here. But aside from that, you know, let me ask you as we get into the the cultivated meat of the matter here, Josh. 
So you and I met in 2016. If I had said to you, seven years from now, in the year 2023, what percent chance do you give to cultivated meat being for sale somewhere in the United States? Not mm-hmm. on Walmart shelves, but just for sale anywhere. What would you have said in, in 2016? Well, you know, in 2016, I would have said 100%, you know? Wow, um, yeah, yeah. You know, I was kind of, you know, wide-eyed, bushy tail, kind of excited about everything that was going on. Now, if you'd asked me a couple of years after that, I, that, that percentage would have gone down significantly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I, What about in 2020, if I had said that by 2023, will anyone be selling it at all in the United States? Yeah, I maybe would have given it a 25% chance. Huh. Well, wow, pretty low. Okay. So, uh, no, I think, I think yeah, now, so- obviously, right now we're seeing that, that that almost definitely will be, right? Upside will be selling their chicken, I think, in the next few months, I would be, I, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's hope so. I mean, people have been saying it's quote, months away for some time now, but yeah. I, you know, I, you know, nobody hopes that's true more than I do, of course. But, uh, you know, I want to ask you, like, why? And then we can get into what sci-fi is doing that's different from everybody else, like why yeah. you felt the need to come in and do your own company. But why is it? You know, there was so much optimism. There's been a ton of money poured into the space. Why is it? Not just the lack of regulatory approval, because even even if Upside is allowed to sell, it still is going to be, you know, a very tiny amount that is being sold, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's, I mean, it's the industry, even under optimistic projections is going to be less than 1% of the total volume of animal-based meat for maybe another decade or so. I mean, there's a hundred billion pounds of animal-based meat that's produced in the U.S. every year. So, you know, to get to, I mean, if you look at, you know, what companies like Believer and Eat Just, they say they're building these huge plants that will be able to produce tens of millions of pounds. So, you know, when you combine them all, maybe you get to a hundred million. So you're, you know, not even a tenth of a one percent there. So the question is why? Like, why is it taking so long? And what do you think are the hurdles that you are going to overcome to change that? Yeah. Yeah. Fundamentally it's around cost and scale. Right? It's how can you scale up you know, cell culture and do it cheaply enough, right? Because a food product, any food product, including meat, is fundamentally a cheap, is cheap, right? Even premium meats are still extremely cheap. Even bluefin tuna is still extremely cheap when compared to the cost of cell culture as it's been done for decades in biopharma, right? And so you really have to take something and, and figure out how to drop the price by orders of magnitudes and sometimes increase the scale. By orders of magnitudes, and the reality is, if you look at the history of biomanufacturing and fermentation, you know, getting any biomanufactured product or process or cell line to real manufacturing scale is incredibly challenging. You're talking about years of work, years of investment, sometimes a lot of risk as you're as you're scaling up. Right, it's not something that is easy, and the kind of default way of doing that in cultivated meat makes it even harder. And there's a few parts of that. You know, first, a lot of companies are trying to do that without any kind of genetic engineering. Um, and yeah, my essential conclusion, and we'll talk about this more, is that that's just not really viable. Right? If you look at any, any biomanufactured cell line, whether it's fermentation or not, that, that, that can be scaled up and produce at scale it's generally a pretty engineered cell line in order to do that for for animal cells right yeah and not even, necessarily and, yeah and bacteria and fermentation as well yeah and yeast. well i'm just 
I'm just thinking, I'm only playing devil's advocate because as listeners will soon hear, or listeners who have been listening for a while know, like, I'm, you know, I, I think bioengineering is essential. But just as a counterexample, I mean, corn, Q U O R N, for mm-hmm. decades has a massively scaled industrial fungal fermentation operation where they sell products for only dollars a pound with a, with a wild strain of fungi that has never been, n- not only not bioengineered, they haven't domesticated it in any way, not any natural select, not any directed selection at all. Correct. Yeah, yeah. That's a little different because it's actually growing the kind of yeast as the product, or the bacteria. Sorry, the 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 mycelium in that case, the fungi, the fungi, right. as yeah, but itself, as opposed to like right. fermentation, where you're trying to get a cell line to produce something else or cultivate. Yeah, very much so. Very much agreed. And just for people who are are not initiated, we're talking about the difference between growing essentially, you know, the organism for itself, called biomass fermentation, or using the organism as basically a factory to produce something else. It's kind of like having the chickens for the chicken meat or the chickens for the eggs, right? And so in some cases, you're doing precision fermentation to have the chicken lay a special kind of egg that you want and some, you know, yeah. whether it be an animal protein or not. Exactly. And, you know, obviously in cultivated meat, the cell is the product as well. But you're asking that animal cell to grow in a situation which is extremely unlike the situation those cells normally grow in. Right. And so, and, and this is one of the big realizations we had is that when you take a cell from an animal, from a, like a cow muscle, right, that cell has got all kinds of characteristics and behaviors, which fundamentally have got nothing to do with how it tastes, but which do make it extremely expensive and complicated to try and produce outside that cow. And, and that's where we think genetic engineering plays a really important role in figuring out how to solve those problems. So anyway, that's, so, let's say there's more problems, so what is well, it? but that's one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's talk about that because, you know, I think like under like, you know, the, the common view of people is like, well, if you take these cells out of the animal's body and you put it in a cultivator that is the same temperature and the same pH, the cell basically thinks that it's still inside the animal's body and it does what it would normally do, which is grow into meat. And you're saying it's a whole heck of a lot more complicated than that. One of the reasons I presume you're saying that is because you need cell densities that are just you know, way, way higher than what people typically get in these bioreactors. Is that accurate? Yeah, I'd say there are three key challenges. There's obviously more, but there are three key challenges when you take just the kind of muscle cell. You know, the first challenge is that cell naturally only wants to grow attached to other cells or a surface. And so you can grow it, you know, on, in 2D in a flat layer of, of cells on a plate uh, but if you want to manufacture it, you need to grow it in a bioreactor, right? It needs to be floating in liquid where you can get it some meaningful cell densities, not just attached to the outside of the bioreactor where you'll get almost nothing. So that's the kind of first fundamental challenge of cultivated meat. Can you even get your cells to grow in a bioreactor? You know, if you can't do that, kind of forget about it. The second challenge is that you know, animal cells will only grow when they're being told to grow. And they're being told to grow in the body when they receive certain signals. Those signals come in the, in the form of hormones or growth factors, which if you want to reproduce outside the animal, you're producing those recombinantly, and they can be extremely expensive to produce, thousands, maybe even millions of dollars per gram. And ultimately, we realize that the price of those growth factors needs to be reduced by about a thousand fold in order for cultivated meat to actually become kind of affordable. That's another challenge. And then the third challenge is, yeah, even if you've solved those and you've got your cells growing in a bioreactor, the normal metabolism of the cell limits the cell density that they can grow at. And if you don't get, if you don't have a certain high cell density, 
then you're going to need to spend huge amounts of capex on bioreactors. Uh, and that really becomes important as you're looking at the financial model of, you know, hey, how much can you actually spend on a production plant and what kind of revenue you're going to get from that? What's the IRR? Like it really becomes a very important part of the model. And so if you can't get sufficient cell density, again, the financials just don't make sense. And so you really need mm. to solve all, all, all of those problems. Right. So, you know, what do you think if you're pitching investors and you're talking about your rate of return, you're going to build a factory and how many years is it going to pay for itself here? Is it you single digit years? Yeah, that's the goal. That's the goal, right? There's, okay. there's certain hurdle yeah. rates when it comes to IRR and those kind of fluctuate depending on the economic environment. But, you know, you've got to have really positive IRR on your on the CapEx you're spending to show yeah. that it's going to be a worthwhile investment. And, you know, ultimately, yeah, ultimately, one of the things that I think is really important for the industry and anyone in, in biomanufacturing is you have to you have to map out those numbers. You have to do a full what's called a techno-economic assessment yeah. or analysis where you understand all of the unit economics, all of the inputs, all of the behaviors of the cell, all of the capex going into the bioreactors, all of the energy usage, the staffing. You understand how all of that feeds into the financial model. Um, mm. And you really need to get down to the smallest details to understand that. Cool. And yeah, just just for those who maybe aren't as financially literate, I just want to say IRR versus internal rate of return. So basically, you know, how quickly can you pay this thing off in the, for the what you're calling the CapEx or the capital expenditures here? So if you're going to spend $100 million making a cultivated meat plant in, you know, how many years will you have $100 million of profit basically from that plant that, that right. pays for it there? Right. So you're using bioengineering in order to overcome these hurdles that you were mentioning, basically to get the cells to be happy in a suspended state, to get them to grow at far denser cell densities than mm -hmm. they would normally grow at. But still, you're not talking about making a whole burger out of animal cells, right? So what is it that you want to make? Because I, I looked at the, the, the life cycle analysis that you all did, and you're talking about essentially a hybrid burger that right. is partial, partially animal cell and partially plant-based. And so I'd love to know, like, what is it that you intend to make? Like, how, how meaningful of a contribution are the animal cells? And what are they bringing to the table? Like, how is it better than an impossible burger? Yeah, so yeah, my dream, right, and our goal as a company is to eventually get to the point where we can produce 100% cultivated meat and we can produce any kind of meat product at scale and affordable in an affordable way. There are a number of steps needed to get there. And the first step is going to be blended products that are still mainly plant-based, but which use cultivated cells essentially for flavor, right? To bring in the fats and the proteins that are responsible for the flavor and experience of meat. And we found that we can actually have a pretty transformative effect on the flavor of essentially a plant-based product, even with pretty small inclusion rates. So at a kind of 10, you know, 10%-ish, 10 to 20% inclusion rate. You know, it really masks any of the kind of plant-based off notes and creates all of these kind of beefy, meaty kind of smells and aromas and tastes, which just don't otherwise are really lacking. And you mm -hmm. get to the point where it just tastes like beef in a way that even the Impossible Burger, which is the best plant-based burger, still doesn't, you know, it's in this kind of uncanny valley where you close your eyes and you you bite the actual burger and it still basically tastes like plant protein. Well, and I, our burgers I, don't, I, they taste I, like beef. Yeah. Well, I, I can't wait to try your burger, but I, I will tell you that I have a test for all these products. I call it the Eddie test. So this is relating to my dog, Eddie. Okay. And he is a vehemently anti-plant-based meat dog. He yeah. will not let it pass his lips. He does not care. You can 
you know, cook it anyway. It doesn't matter. He hates plant-based meat. However, he's very happy to eat impossible products. And so I thought, I, I theorized it must be the heme in the burger that mm. is actually like sa- satiating his meat tooth. However, he's quite happy to eat the impossible chicken nuggets too, even though they don't have heme in them. So I, I don't know what impossible is doing. But I'm telling you, this is a very discerning dog who hates plant-based meat normally, huh? and he's very happy to eat impossible. I mean, so maybe he likes, maybe he eat. likes, yeah, maybe he likes soy and doesn't like pee, which is something. Uh, that- yeah, no, you know, maybe that's so. But I've given him many soy-based products that you know he, he doesn't want to eat Gardein, he doesn't want to eat Boca, yeah. you know, other things that have soy. He, he's not into it. So I, I will do an impossible. Yeah, this would be a pretty expensive test to do, but an impossible and a sci-fi product for him one day. And, oh. uh, Hey, it's not, it's actually not happens. that expensive anymore. So uh, oh, when you when okay. you when you come down, visit the lab. Obviously, he can't come in the lab, but he can come into the office, yes. and we can we can bring some burgers yeah. out for him to try. This, uh, yeah, this reminds me of the old hit job on what was then Hampton Creek when Bloomberg reported like they had Josh Tetrick's dog was in the lab. You I don't know if you ah. remember this. It's like it's like back in like 2016 or 17. Like the big scandal was that his dog went in the lab. But no, Eddie will not go in a lab. I promise you that. But yeah, it'll be fun to do. So you're making a blended burger that's 90 yeah. percent plant based and 10 percent with animal cells. And, and you think that 10% of animal cells, are these are all muscle or some of them an animal fat also, or is all the fat plant-based? Yeah. Well, so, so let me talk a bit about why we're doing this and why this will be, these will be the first kind of products that really will exist in the market full stop, not just with us. Uh, you know, there are two, there are two challenges when you're talking about hundred percent cultivated meat. One challenge is just financial, right? So we just had this whole conversation talking about the CapEx and the IRR, right? We one of the outputs of our own techno-economic modeling was that you know if we assume the progress that we know we can make through bioengineering, and we assume kind of standard bioreactor technology today and all you know cost of inputs that are, that we know are true today, then you can get the IRR to work on the capex for like a a ten-ish, ten twenty percent inclusion rate, right? That works financially. But when, if you when, increase when that, you say get the IRR to work, how many years of the payback is that? Five so like, years, ten years? Yeah, like what, what exactly, does it mean to work? Sing, single digit year paybacks, kind of IRR, okay. get you know, above the kind of 16, 17% kind of hurdle Got rate, it. which is common. Okay. Right. But you're still talking, if we're talking about a facility that can make 100 million burgers a year, right? You're still talking 150, 200 million dollars of CapEx. Right. So, and just to be clear, 100 million burgers, presumably they're quarter pounders. So that's Correct. 25 million pounds of product, 10% of which is animal cell. So, you know, 2.5 million pounds of animal cells, basically for, right. for a CapEx of what were you saying? A hundred million dollars? 150. 150 million. Okay. Yeah. So $150 million basically to produce two and a half million pounds of animal cells. Correct. Now, Got it. if you're making, and you know, you can, how much can you sell a burger for? You know, $2 a quarter pounder burger, maybe, right? Is our projection. Now, if you're talking okay. about 100% cultivated, times that capex by 10 for the same right. revenue, right? So you're talking about $1.5 billion of capex at today's bioreactor technology. The IRR on that does not look anywhere close as good, right? You're not going to get financing for that kind of facility. Right, right. Yeah, you essentially need like, you know, government grants of in massive amounts or, or yeah. government low interest loans yes. in massive amounts, like the kind that Solyndra got, you know, a couple hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars, right? And and that's just one of the problems, right? Because all the stuff we've been talking about today is just 
how do you grow a load of cells in bioreactors? But when you take those cells out of the bioreactor, what do you have? You have individual cells, right? So those individual cells may be incredibly tasty beef cells with all the, the fats and the proteins that create that flavor and experience of meat, but they're not tissue. They're not 3D structured muscle tissue and fat tissue. And if you want to make a product that's, you know, 100% cultivated, even if it's not structured, right, you, you need to have that real texture. <clears throat> and the technology to create that kind of structure today, the kind of tissue engineering, ultimately is still very small scale, very expensive, and not really scalable at all. Now, I am, I, I've, I, yeah, I'm privy to some new technology that is being worked on by various companies and various like B2B players. And there are new bioreactors and technologies being developed that over the next five to 10 years, I think may make some of that creation of 3D muscle tissue viable. But the technology that people are using today is very small scale and very expensive and nowhere, nowhere near ready to, ready to actually go into manufacturing. Interesting. Yeah, our, our February 1st episode for 2023 was with Taryn Wolf, the CEO of Matrix FT, which is one of these B2B players that you're mentioning, which is basically making microcarriers and scaffolding agents mm. and so on for to sell to companies like yours, asserting that they can help overcome some of these challenges that you are discussing. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes for this yeah. episode as well at businessforgoodpodcast.com. So let me ask you then, like, who's the audience, right? So for a burger that's partially plant-based, partially animal cell culture, is it the same audience like, you know, for a, an impossible burger or is it a different set of people who might be interested in that type of a hybridized burger? You know, I think when you look at the plant-based meat industry, it's interesting because if you zoom out and just look at what's, what's happening with just people in America, right? Almost 50% of the population now considers themselves some kind of flexitarian, right? People are, People don't want to stop eating meat. They they just they just don't. They they generally love the taste of meat. They love the experience, the cultural, whatever it is, like every, everything around it. And I include myself in that as well. But people are increasingly aware of the challenge, the problems with meat, right? The problems with deforestation, the problems with factory farming, the problems with climate change. And often, you know, they they want to make a better decision, but. The way that, you know, buying food ultimately is an emotional decision. And when it comes to those kind of intellectual things about being better for the world, right, they may agree with that. But when it comes to buying a burger, ordering a burger in a restaurant or whatever it is, you know, they don't want to make a sacrifice. And ultimately, taste is a major part of that. And I really view taste right. as one of the biggest inhibitors, along with price, but taste being one of the biggest inhibitors to people buying alternatives. And I think there's so right. many people have tried meat alternatives and plant-based meat over the past five years. Like almost everyone's tried it, but it's only a relatively small percentage of meat eaters who've continued buying it regularly. Right? And ultimately it's that repeat yeah. rate, which is yeah, really what drives the success or failure of a, of a company over time. And you know, the taste just hasn't been there yet. And yeah. so I really see blended products as being able to dramatically increase the market size for meat alternatives by just tasting better. 
Cool. I, I see that too. I, I concur with your assessment that, you know, basically if it's true that 10%, like if in blind taste test focus groups, 10% animal cell inclusion to, you know, even to an impossible burger, let's say as an example, you know, back to back, if it was dramatically pre- preferred on taste, I think that would be yeah. uh, totally and transformative. We, we do blind tastes all the time internally. Obviously we can't do it with consumers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, adding adding the cells to our plant based formula creates like major incre- improvements in taste yeah. and aroma cool. and, and overall liking. Oh, I, I can't wait to do such a taste myself. Yeah, come taste down and try it anytime. I, I, I will. Yeah, I just want to mention. You know, you, you you commented just a minute ago that you know a huge portion of of people self-identify as flexitarians and I too see these same polling responses. But sadly, I I do think that what people tell pollsters about their behavior is more aspirational than actual. And, you know, it has to be easy, you know, like, yeah, like, I mean, the facts are that meat demand on a per person basis in America has never been higher than it is today. Like right. it's literally in- increased virtually every year, yeah, every year. There's a period, but yeah, there was a period between 2008 and 2014 where it actually did go down somewhat largely, you know, just in the aftermath of the recession for economic reasons, but people have shown like they'll eat about as much meat as they can afford. Yeah. Um, and that's true. That's true cross-culturally as countries come out of living in the undeveloped world and they start joining the developed world and start developing a class, like one of the very first things they do is just start eating a lot more meat. And so I I do think like, you know, I I have some friends who are vegan as I am, who are, you know, very optimistic about the world, you know, changing and and becoming vegan. But I I share your point of view, Josh, that that's extremely unlikely. And I just think people want meat. So we need to find ways to produce it for them. I I do want to ask you, you know, I, I, as you will remember, I was in your audience for a talk that you were giving at the Reducitarian Summit back in May of 2022 in San Francisco. And you were very passionately defending bioengineering as a strategy. And, you know, there've been a lot of companies in this space that either don't want to talk about it or they don't want to use it at all because they're afraid. They're afraid that it'll turn off consumers. You've made a very different decision. Why? Why do you think that consumers either won't care or or might even prefer the product because of it? You know, ultimately, if a product isn't affordable and can't be produced at scale, then it doesn't matter. And, you know, my conviction after the last seven years being in this industry is that without the use of genetic engineering, you won't be able to produce a, a product that actually is at price parity with conventional meat at any kind of meaningful scale. Uh, and, you know, that's a bit of a controversial opinion in the industry, but I, I really fundamentally quite strongly believe that. And, and so I view it as an essential, right? And so what, what are they going to choose versus the genetically engineered cultivated meat that's on the market and is at price parity or the one that's not been able to scale up or just is 10x the price of conventional meat? They're going to choose the one that's, that's, that's affordable and available. And I think Impossible versus Beyond is a great example of this, right? Impossible are very proudly GMO. Right. They use GMO soy, the genetically engineered yeast to create their heme protein. They talk about it very openly. They talk about why they're doing it and the benefits. And they sell it in Burger King and no one really cares. And most people you know, much prefer the Impossible Burger over Beyond, which is proudly non-GMO, because the Impossible Burger tastes better. Right, And that's ultimately what people actually care about. Like people, yeah. Especially in the US, people yeah. eat huge amounts of GMO food. And again, they'll tell a poll. If you, t- if you ask them, you say, do you want to eat GMO food? People say, no, I'd prefer not to. But then when they're walking down the aisle and choo- or choosing a burger to order, that's, that's not what they actually think about or care about. 
right? Yeah, I, you know, you're, you're making a case with which I strongly identify myself. And I would go even further, you know, polling shows that 80% of Americans want food that contains DNA to be labeled. And so, of course, you know, every, every food contains DNA, right? Like yeah. people just don't really, you know, you know, it's, it's asking too much to ask consumers to be so scientifically fluent yeah. and things, things that sound sciencey, like, you know, DNA or bioengineering and so on. It kind of, it, it, it sounds like it's something scary when, of course, to the scientifically literate, it's, it's not. But for most people, I think it's asking too much to, you know, for them to really comprehend, you know, biotechnology and so on. The, the real question is, is it safe? And that will be up to the FDA and its expertise to judge on the merits of the safety, not on public opinion, but on actual science and showing whether something is safe or not. And I think your example about impossible is very apt, which is, you know, to be perfectly honest, I actually like eating beyond because it tastes less like meat to me than impossible. Obviously, my dog feels differently. But, um, you know, I, you know, having been vegan for the last 30 years, I, I don't have a strong desire to have something that tastes identical to meat. But I, I like the taste of meat. And if I, you know, I'm, I'm traveling and there's a Burger King, I'll certainly get an Impossible Whopper for sure. But, you know, I, I do think like we have to go not based on what people tell pollsters, but what people actually do in 100%. the world. It actually, yeah, it kind of reminds me also of... Um, Interestingly, in, in California, there have been a couple votes of the populace on eggs from caged hens. And in 2018, there was a ballot measure called Prop 12. Two-thirds of Californians voted to make it illegal to sell eggs that came from caged hens. Two-thirds said it should be illegal to sell the eggs mm. of caged hens. And of course, 90% of the eggs sold in California at that time were coming from caged hens. So, you know, people were voting to ban the very thing that they were doing. Yeah. And of course, as somebody who cares deeply about animal welfare, I'm glad, I'm glad the vote went that way. But it's just a great example of, you know, how we act in the voting booth or when we're in telling pollsters is very different from what we do as consumers, which is basically go on tape taste and price. Let me ask you, Josh, you mentioned a moment ago that, you know, that you are not a vegetarian, that you do eat meat, which is somewhat different from many of the founders in the space. Like yeah. many of the founders in the space are people who are vegetarians or vegans. They often came out of the animal welfare NGO world or the environmental or climate movements, but that's not you. So what's the motivating factor for you? Like you've said in interviews that, you know, funding, you know, is not why you're doing this, which I am sure is true. So what is like the motivating passion for you to devote your life to this? Yeah, you know, as I said, what what initially drove the obsession was just this feeling like this was the future we had to build. And, you know, I, I, I eat meat, but I'm very aware of the environmental devastation. And a big part of what drove me, kind of really triggered me to kind of make the switch eventually and do it myself was really just feeling con- so such concern about how bad direction the world was moving in from a climate change perspective and a recognition that this is one of the most important elements for solving that problem and one that I felt needed needed extra help to do. And, you know, while I eat meat, I'm, you know, absolutely not a fan of factory farming, right? I think I do think that in 50 years or however long it takes, we're going to be looking back and just thinking that it was such a moral blight on humanity to be, uh, yeah, stuffing billions of animals into these terrible conditions and, and slaughtering them in terrible conditions. And again, that's just not that's not the utopian future that that I want the world to see. And you know, ultimately, 
I think that there is actually a lot of benefit for me as someone who eats meat to be to be the face of of these kinds of products. You know, I think one of the one of the big challenges for plant based meat has been a struggle to reach a lot of middle America, right? And it's it's something that's done really well among the kind of coastal elites and the food innovators and the vegans and the, and the vegetarians and the hardcore flexitarians in LA and New York and San Francisco. And, but why is, why has plant-based meat and meat become part of the culture war, right? Why, why when impossible launch new products, are there people with pro meat placards kind of protesting in front, right? In front of the restaurants. Right. And I think language is a big part of that. And there has been this really kind of anti-meat rhetoric around plant-based meat and it's understandable right because there's a lot of passion and excitement around that but if you want to switch the habits of the kind of you know the normal the normal people who like their burgers and like their beef and like their barbecue right it's it's a hard message to be getting from you know no offense but kind of from a vegan activist right telling them that they should not be eating their meat and yeah i i I, I, I can assure you josh i don't take offense in fact i have I've joked for many years that uh, I'm not the person who made up this joke, but I do repeat it, which I find funny and, and sadly sometimes true. Do you know what the biggest impediment to widespread veganism is? <laughs> no, but I, I think I can tell what you're going to say. Yeah. The vegans, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah it's just it's sadly is is sometimes true. So, in addition to defying the odds and trying to you know grow cells at a density and in a manner that has not been done before, at least from what we can tell from what these companies say publicly. You also defied the odds and raised a ton of money in the middle of 2022, which is a very difficult time to be raising cash because it's a economically wintry time and VCs had their doors locked shut for the most part, but not to you. You raised a $22 million round. Congratulations. This had happened on the heels of the the now famous or infamous, depending on which way you look at it, counter story about the technological lack of feasibility for cultivated meat. So with such a negative environment for fundraising, coupled with a negative environment on you know this lack of optimism for cultivating animal cells for commercial food purposes, what was your pitch? Like, how did you make this argument that you were the one who deserved tens of millions of dollars to actually prove the skeptics wrong and say, hey, actually, this can be done? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because this actually takes us full circle back to the beginning of the interview when I was talking about, you know, the need to listen to to skeptics. And, you know, we are a little different in the cultivated meat industry because, you know, when David Humbird released his techno-economic analysis, which is, you know, the kind of basis of that counter article. We read it and we agreed with it. It you know, largely lined up with our own techno-economic analysis. And, you know, essentially the conclusion was 100% cultivated meat. If you're not using any kind of genetic engineering and you're assuming today's supply chain and, and bioreacts technology is not commercially viable. And we, we came to the exact same conclusion, right? That's why we're creating blended products. That's why we're using genetic engineering. And ultimately, we have a techno-economic analysis that shows how we can create a profitable and affordable product at scale using the same assumptions that David Humbert uses in that techno-economic analysis. Mm. Interesting. And, yeah. 
So you're you're saying at scale you can make it profitable and affordable, but what about now? Like you know the famous 2013 Mark Postberger, you know it cost 330,000 US dollars. Now of course that was just 100% cow cells, like it wasn't a blended product, it didn't have even any fat in it at all. It's just pure muscle cells. But what's a sci-fi burger cost to produce today? Like a 1090 hybrid product? Yeah, so you know beginning of last year, before we'd achieved this big milestone around suspension, single cell suspension it was still $10,000 a burger. By the end of so last, 20, yeah. by the end of last so year, we'd got it down to about 200, so for, $250. $250 a burger. So basically $1,000 a pound. Yeah. And if it's a quarter we, pounder. And, and this year, we were on track to get it down to about $10 a burger by the end of the year. By the end of 2023. Yeah. Correct. Great. Exciting. Oh, and that's I, really exciting. Yeah. Well, and I'll so go, deeper and I'll than I thought. So I'll, I'll, yeah, and our goal over the next few years is to get it down to a dollar. Nice. Well, it, it, already at present, if that's true, it's a you know it's a lot cheaper than I thought. So I'll feel less bad feeding it to Eddie for, yeah. for his for his. his we'll make him a slider. Here. <laughs> <Don't think laughs> <I'm doing> <laughs> that's fine. That, that's fine. It's just for science. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, you know, if you if you're into Greek mythology, maybe this hybrid product, you know, the first one would be called a centaur or some other hybrid yeah. a- animal that you could put in there. That's cool. Well, congratulations on the fundraising. It's exciting for you as a founder to be leading the company and to have that type of fundraising completed in such a difficult time to start scaling and and trying to prove that this can work at greater and greater sizes. So, I'm very I'm very encouraged to hear that. And of course, we'll be rooting for the success of the company. You've named some books during this interview that I will include in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But for somebody like you, who's had been a, a serial entrepreneur with several exits, is there any resource or resources, Josh, that you think would be good to recommend? If somebody says, hey, now this guy's had two, two companies acquired, so he has tens of millions of dollars for a third company. This guy must know something I don't know. What resources might you recommend for them? Yeah, you know, there's a book which I read in my early 20s, and I, I still reread every now and then. And, you know, the title is not a great title in some ways, but it's purposefully kind of slightly ironic. But it's a book called How to Get Rich by Felix Dennis. And it's a kind, okay. of, anti, it's kind of an anti-self-help book. Felix Dennis was a very successful entrepreneur, UK, British entrepreneur, uh, although he did a lot of stuff in America as well, did a lot of different companies. And it's kind of a book of his personal journey and his kind of, it's kind of his memoir and his story and his advice to kind of young entrepreneurs. And I feel it captures the kind of heart of being a founder and the challenges of being a founder and the sacrifices that you need to make in your life in order to kind of commit yourself to this path. Uh, And I think it has a lot of true gems of wisdom that for any kind of young entrepreneur in any any field at all, I think can be very impactful. It's funny you talk about that as like, you know, because these days, like, quote unquote, work-life balance is, you know, often talked about as a very important thing. And, you know, my own experience, both running a startup and in talking to other founders, is that if you really want a chance of success, it's, it's very hard to say that you want work-life balance, that that's something that, you know, people talk about, but in reality is a very difficult thing to achieve. Has that been your experience? You know, it depends. There are times I find everything goes in cycles as a founder. And, you know, there are times when um, it's just full on, you know, fundraising is often one of those times where it's just nonstop. It's intense. 
you know, working late every evening, you know, staying on top on, on, on emails and working at the weekends. And that's just how it is. And if you want to be successful, you, you've just got to put the, the grind and the hours in. There can be moments when sometimes things are a little more relaxed and you've got a great team and everyone's just executing and you're kind of heads down and, you know, you can find some more time for other things and you can, you know, I've learned to enjoy those moments because I know that, you know, at some point it's going to be full on again and uh, you just have to find, find, you know, the things that make you happy and that keep you going around, around the needs of, of the startup and it varies. But, uh, you know, I, I also think that, yeah, startups are super hard and you have to work incredibly hard. I, I do think that some founders don't recognize the moments when they can step off a little bit, you know, especially some first time founders, you know, that it can be, there's moments of intensity where you have to be putting in the hours all the time. And then there are some times where you don't. And I know some people have kind of burnt themselves out by thinking that they need to be killing themselves every day, regardless of whether it's really essential. So you just have to, you have to have yeah. a, get a feel for what's needed from the company. Very good. Very good. Well, sage advice for sure. Before we let you go, Josh, one final question. Obviously, you're committed to sci-fi foods. I presume you believe you're going to be running this company for years to come. So as somebody who has founded many companies, you probably have thoughts about what companies you wish existed that don't exist. So let me ask you, like, are there any things that you hope maybe a listener to this show will start on their own and do something good in the world by creating that company that you're not going to do yourself? Yeah, you know, I think we've chatted a lot about kind of you know, how to make the unit economics and the capex for cultivated meat work. And the, the reality is that this is a big challenge, not just for cultivated meat, but, but also for any kind of precision fermentation products. Right? There's a lot of products that just are really going to struggle because they can't quite get the economics to work. And a lot of that is, is from the capex and from the bioreactor technology. And, you know, there are a couple of companies, startups working on some exciting stuff around thinking about how they can create new kinds of bioreactor and biomanufacturing technology that does reduce the capex. We need them and I think we need more, right? I really think that's one of the biggest opportunities is if you can really invent technologies and hardware that really changes the economics of producing biomanufactured products, then that can have such a huge impact on the world for all kinds of things from cultivated meat through to fermentation and, and, and everything else. And so that's one thing that I'd love to see more startups in. So basically B2B players in the alternative protein space. Correct. But, you know, yeah. more efficient biomanufacturing technologies have all kinds of use cases. It doesn't have to be specific to, to cultivated meat. It can be across the entire industry. Right. Ah, good point. Yeah, very good point. All right. Well, with that, Josh, congratulations again on the success that you're having. I am definitely going to take you up on this taste test opportunity. I yeah. cannot wait to... So uh, thanks in advance for offering that. And thanks for all you're doing to try to create a better meat industry. Of course. Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.